Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit today. Uh, we, uh, we were gone the last two weeks. Debbie and I took a trip to Yellowstone and the Tetons, and I was thinking about them as we sing the last, I think it was the last verse of Holy, 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 maker of earth and sky and sea. And so we got to see some of the real beauty of God's creation uh, in Montana and Wyoming and drove a lot of miles and came back home refreshed. And it's good to be back here at Cedar Home and preaching. Um, I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews for those of you that may be new or visiting and, uh, or forgot that I was teaching through the book of Hebrews. But um, uh, I took a break. I don't know if you remember that that far back a month ago because I felt like it was important for me to do that because of the, as Brian mentioned, the stressful times that we're living in right now. And so I took a break from the book of Hebrews and went into the Psalms. And I don't know if you recall, but we took a lot of comfort from the Psalms. In Psalm 142, I preached about when you feel powerless. And then in Psalm 46, when circumstances threaten to overtake you, and if these are online, I believe, if you want to hear them. They did me a lot of good as I was preparing and preaching them. But uh, today we're going to make a move back into the book of Hebrews. And uh, the way I want to state this is, is that we're going to go from necessary comfort to necessary challenge. From necessary comfort to necessary challenge. I mean, as believers in the church, we need to be comforted. And I think we did that pretty well in these psalms. But we also need to be challenged. And definitely Hebrews is a book of challenges and warnings. And as we resume the book of Hebrews today, we're going to go back to chapter 10 and finish the chapter. So if you have a Bible with you, go to chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 39. Now, believe it or not, this was part of a two-part series on perseverance. Perseverance is a theme that goes really from start to finish in the book of Hebrews. Perseverance, 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 perseverance. In light of Christ's return, we need as Christians to persevere as a proof that we really are Christians. You don't get saved by persevering, but if you are saved, you're going to persevere. This is what Hebrews teaches us. And the first part of uh, the last words on perseverance, which was the title of this two-part series, the first part is, what do I do while I'm persevering? And while we're waiting for the, the Lord to return, or maybe we'll go to be with him before he returns, we need to do some things. And then the first part of the series in verses 19 through 25, there were five things that we need to be doing constantly to prepare for Christ's return, to persevere. Number one, let us draw near to God. Verse 22, chapter 10, Number two, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Number three, consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Help us to help each other to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up uh, meeting together. Come to church if we can. If we can, we ought to be fellowshipping together in church, in home group, as, as often as we can. And then encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That was part one. What should we do while we're persevering? Again, online, if you want to hear that. Um, now today we're going to switch gears because now it talks about why we should persevere. Not just what to do, but why should we persevere in our walk with Christ? And the answer is this. 
because of the dangers of apostasy. Because the dangers of apostasy. That is why we need to persevere in our walk with Jesus in these crazy times. All the way up to the point where Christ returns or we go to be with him. We need to persevere because of the danger of apostasy. And this is the fifth of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Um, And it might be the greatest warning. Some people say this is the most intense, severe warning in all of the Bible. I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's definitely up there. Let me explain what apostasy is so we start off on the right foot before we get into the meat of this text. Apostasy, or an apostate in Scripture, is referring to those who have heard the gospel, they've come face to face with Christ, they've been drawn to Christ, they've been warmed toward Christ, maybe even convicted of their sin, maybe even professed faith in him, maybe even baptized, and for a period of time, short or long, they've been associated with the church. Okay, but eventually, uh, for one reason or another, which I'll identify here shortly, they begin to grow cold, and they begin to turn away. They begin to back out or back away from Christ and the doctrine of Christ and all that that means. Now, evidently, some of these Jewish believers in this church that the writer writes to here in Italy had visibly identified themselves um, with Christ and the true church, but then they started to cool off. They started to cool or turn back or turn away from Christ because of some of the following stuff. Persecution. Intense temptation. False teachings. Neglecting to truly exercise repentance and faith in Christ. They got... Some of them were choked by the traditions that they were used to or their doubts or whatever, but ultimately they proved themselves not to be a believer because they didn't persevere. Jesus talks about that a lot, and the Bible talks about that a lot. In his parable of the soils, Jesus, this is the classic parable about apostasy. In chapter 13 of the Gospel of Matthew, in verses 3 through 9, Jesus says, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering his seed, some fell along the path, and birds came up and ate it. Excuse me, some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Others fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still others' seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. And that's Jesus' way of saying, listen really, really close. And then we go to the answer after the disciples said, hey, tell us what this means. Verse 18, same chapter, it says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the one who is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. But The one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word 
and understands it, he produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So what is apostasy? Well, ultimately, apostasy or an apostate is, is the sin of unbelief, eventually, for which there's no forgiveness, as we'll see. And I'll tell you why here shortly, but the Bible is full of apostates, people who walked with God for a while and then for one reason or another turned their back on him. I'm reading through the book of Judges right now, and the Israelites were guilty of apostasy in many places. And the discipline of God brought them back to him, but some never did get brought back to him. If you want a working definition from the scriptures of apostasy, 1 John 2.19 works very, very well. It says this, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. That's a, that's a general definition of apostasy from the scriptures. The word apostasy brings back a vivid memory for me personally. I came to know the Lord at the end of my junior year in high school, and I was, I was hot for Christ. I really was. I was, I was hot. I witnessed. I, I read the Word of God, me- memorized tons of scriptures, went to church. And back then, in the 70s, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Anybody remember those days? Yeah. I mean, and you'd, if you missed that, then you were, um, you were not a spiritual person, you know. And, uh, but anyway, I started to grow cool after a couple years. And my enthusiasm really started to drain, you know. And uh, church started to get kind of boring. And I, I just wasn't on fire for the Lord anymore. And then they had a guest speaker at the church. And he spoke on apostasy. And I don't even know how to describe it to you this morning, but I'm thinking all week, how do I, how do I tell the church how I felt that day, that, that evening? It was as if God turned me into a salt and pepper shaker, shook me upside down and was shaking me out. I mean, it went right through me, like shock waves. I was in shock, spiritual shock. Because he, he, this guy did a great sermon. I think he just retired a few years ago. And I looked him up on the internet and I was in danger of apostasy. And he shook, the Holy Spirit through him, shook me up, and I never turned back since. And I'm so grateful. I can, that was 46 years ago, and I can feel it right now like I did then. The Holy Spirit dealt with me. So what I'm gonna say to you as we get into this text today, we need to be prepared for the days ahead. We have to be prepared for the days ahead, what they're gonna bring for us as Christians, and vow in our hearts to avoid apostasy, or a falling away, or a withdrawal, or a defection from Christ at all costs, because the Bible tells us very explicitly in the last days that there will be a huge increase of apostasy. Huge, in the church. Okay, Matthew 24, 10 says at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other many will turn away from the faith not from the outside 
persecuting their church, but from within their church, many will turn away from the faith. First uh, Timothy 4, 1 and 2. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. We see that today, don't we? I could get on a list, grocery list of Christian teachers that I think that's happening with and people are turning away from the true faith. So the title of the message today is Why We Should, Pierce, should Persevere and it's because of the danger, the very real scriptural danger of apostasy. This will not be in the top 10 sermons on TV this morning. Okay? But it's probably number one on the list of important sermons this morning. Okay? And here in this passage, we're given three descriptions of apostasy or what an apostate looks at and it looks like, and then the results of those, that apostasy, but then the antidote too. So we can be careful along the way as our world changes more and more into an anti-Christian world. Okay, even so in the West. Now I want to say this before we get into the text. This is important for me to say that this is a really severe passage. I mean, this, this is a severe passage, but it's a loving passage. You, you get what I'm saying? Because God... You know, Jesus, he could be pretty severe. Every warning he gave those religious leaders as just cutthroat as it seemed was coming out of love for them. What does the Bible say? God is not willing that any should perish. And so these, 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 these really, really severe and eye-opening, head-clearing, heart-touching Severe warnings are loving warnings to protect us, okay? And if even there was just one person here in this church and watching online right now that's in danger of apostasy, God's doing it out of love for you and for me, okay? And I hope it co comes across that way. So let's look at these descriptions of apostasy or what an apostate person looks like to guard ourselves because we don't know what's ahead, right? No? We don't know, do, do you disagree with that? We do not know what's ahead, amen? amen? So let's be prepared. The first description of, ap of apostasy or of an apostate person is someone who at one time professed to be a Christian but has now chosen to live a life of deliberate sin. Someone who at one time professed to be a Christian but has now chosen to live a life of deliberate sin. Let's look at verses 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. At one time, and we don't know how many he's writing to at the church in Italy here, the writer, um, but it could be one, it could be 10, it could, I don't know, but he's, he's saying at one time they had received the knowledge of the truth. And what does that mean, the knowledge of the truth? It means content, but no real conversion. Lots of content, but no real conversion. The apostate is well acquainted with the gospel. Some believers are, unbelievers rather, some unbelievers are not acquainted with the gospel. They don't know anything about the gospel. And we have many of those right here in our country, correct? They don't even know 
what the gospel is. But the apostate is well acquainted with the gospel, okay? The Greek word for knowledge here means more than a passing acquaintance with the gospel. They have all the information intellectually, maybe theologically, they could be brilliant, well-versed in scripture, but they're spiritually unconverted. They're dead spiritually. I mean, they're close to Christ in head knowledge. They've been in the church. They've identified with believers. But after a period of time, as I mentioned earlier, the, the persecution, temptation, sin, tradition, inside neglecting true surrender to Christ, whatever the case may be, but after a period of time, gradually they fall away, turn back, give up, lose interest, and leave the way of God and of Jesus. Now, they could admire Christ, but they are not followers of Christ. They could be a cultural Christian, raised in the church, but not a converted Christian. And you may know someone like this. I do. And believe you me, I don't want to be this kind of person. But it gives a a clue as to what happens in verse 26. They deliberately keep on sinning. What does that mean? Well, thank goodness it doesn't mean to sin. <laughs> I guess I'm the only one that thinks that's funny, but you know, I mean, if, if, if sinning was the uh, thing that took us out of the Christian life, we'd all be up a creek without a paddle, wouldn't we? I mean, I would. Doesn't mean, does, does not mean to sin in the sense of normal sins that every believer commits, thank goodness. The idea is that apostasy, and now, listen closely, is where a person who once professed Christ is now willfully turning back to sin. Okay? Like James tells us, the dog returns to his vomit. It's willful, defiant, intentional, deliberate, continual, and permanent sin, or coupled with false doctrine, as we'll see, which results in denying the Lord Jesus as their master. Now, believers, again, just... So we clear the deck here. The believers fall or lapse into sin. They disobey on purpose. But believers come back to God. Has that been anybody's experience besides mine? Nobody's raising their hand. Of course it has. We've all blown it. We've said, thought, done things that we know are displeasing to God. We've done them on purpose. But that Holy Spirit begins to convict us and we go back and say, oh, Father, forgive me. Wash me clean. And, we, and fellowship is restored to God. Okay, with the, with, the, with the apostate, they don't go back. They go to sin and they deliberately stay there. And there are two results that happen from this. We see in verse 26 and verse 27. Number one, in verse 26, it says, no sacrifice for sins is left. And what that means is they no longer have a sacrifice that can atone for their sins because they rejected Christ's sacrifice, which is the only way to have their sins atoned for. That's it. Good works can't atone for our sins. Being religious can't atone for our sins. Church attendance can't atone for our sins. Getting a Bible degree can't atone for our sins. Giving good gifts to the pastor, well, that's close, but they can't atone for our sins. Nothing can atone for our sins but the blood of Christ. And if that's denied through apostasy, there's no more atonement for sin. And then the other uh, result is God's eternal judgment in verse 27. In, In verse 27, it says, 
um, that no sacrifices are left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God, i.e., hell. Hell. Now you say, Mitch, I haven't heard you talk much about hell from the pulpit. And you're right, because I talk about it when I go to it in Scripture. Scripture tells me when to talk about hell. I don't go a la carte. Did you ever notice that? I go through the Word of God. But when it says it in the Word of God, I preach the Word of God. And it's talking about hell here. And it's because God loves us. And he doesn't want us there. And he sent his son to die for us so that we wouldn't have to go there. But the apostate will go there and they need to fear that so that they can turn around and truly give their life to Christ. And he talks about hell here. He describes it in verse 27 as raging fire. The writer is not pulling any punches here because he's desperately trying to get these apostates to repent and trust Christ with all their innermost being and not just make a show of it and turn away to deliberate sin. Hell is a permanent, inescapable place of separation from God and suffering. And it says in verse 27 that it consumes the enemies of God. Apostates, those who turn away from Christ, will be consumed, not destroyed. Their being will not be destroyed, but their well-being will be destroyed in hell forever. Matthew 13, 47 gives us a view of that. Jesus is uh, speaking about this very subject in Matthew 13. I want to read verses 47 through 50. Matthew 13. Jesus says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. They then, then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. The antidote. The antidote to this awful fate of the apostate or someone who is committing apostasy is turn fully and unreservedly to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Because we can play games in our own mind and we can play games with other people in the church, but you can't play games with God. Well, you say, when those angels come for me, I'll just say, you stay away. How good's that going to work? See, you just want to be prepared. And that's why he's lovingly warning them. Okay? Don't do this, right? Don't, how do we put it? Don't be someone who at one time professed to be a Christian but has now chosen to live a life of deliberate sin. It's definitely not worth it. Number two, the second description of apostasy or of an apostate person is in verses 28 through 31, and that's when a once professing Christian now mistreats the holy truths of God or God's holy truths. They mistreat God's holy truths. Let's look, I'll read verse 28 through 31 if you'd follow along with me, please. Got to go back to 
Hebrews 10 here. 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man who deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know that for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Second description of an apostate or apostasy is that a once professing Christian now mistreats God's holy truth, for which there will be severe judgment, of course. Verse 28 starts out with an Old Testament illustration. It says, Verse 28, um, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So like, if that's true in the Old Testament, how much more will it be true? And he mentions three things. He gives us three truths that will be so much more uh, deserving of punishment than just disobeying the law in the Old Testament. And he gives us three. How much more true will judgment come upon a person who who tramples the Son of God underfoot? Verse 29, trampling the Son of God underfoot. The word trample there means to scorn, to have counted as worthless, to step on or... my, My... The way that I would describe it in my own words for today is kick to the curb. They kick to the curb the truth about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, God in human flesh. It means a scornful denial of the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How much more will judgment come upon a person who darkened the door of a church for a week or a thousand weeks and then trampled the deity of Christ underfoot? And the second thing, it says, how much more severe will God's judgment be for the apostate who treats as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. Now you say, doesn't that mean a Christian? It sounds like, how does a, how does a sanctified person, uh, how does it, it sounds like a believer. This, no, I just gotta say this, the statements of God's attitude towards these people in no way is consistent with the other passages through the New Testament about how God feels about Christians, his children. You have to do some real, you almost have to play a game of twister theologically to say these are Christians the way God describes his attitude toward them. And really for me, the only way to properly interpret these is these are people who had the appearance of a Christian but never were truly converted. And it says, how can a person who treats as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him not bring himself or herself under God's severe and eternal judgment? The word sanctified there means one who has had the appearance of being set apart for Christ, the appearance of it outwardly, but who remains unsaved and who now treats the perfect blood of the new covenant in Christ, God the eternal Son, shed on the cross for us as something unclean or despised or worthless or most likely, the best word here is, they treat it as something common. It's just a common thing. And you see that. 
When someone turns away from a biblical view of Christ, usually the blood of Christ is the first thing to go, the deity of Christ and the blood of Christ. Now the blood of Christ is just the same as any, yours or mine, anybody else's. It's just common. The apostate treats something of infinite value without value. And answer me yes or no. Do we see this often in certain sections of churches? You do. I remember working with a guy who thought the blood of Christ and the whole idea of the cross was barbaric. It was the farthest thing from the truth that the blood of Christ could be uh, um, able and to atone for the sin of the world. That person was an apostate. And it describes many false teachers too. Anyway, we could go on that. Thirdly, the apostate is described here as one who has insulted the spirit of grace. Now, how many people watch the Seahawks game Thursday night? Just a few. How many people will watch some football today? Okay. How many people think this is a stupid illustration? Okay. You ever hear of a stiff arm? You know what a stiff arm is? A stiff arm is when a ball carrier or a receiver has the ball and is running downfield and the person comes up and tackles them or tries to. And they stick their arm out and they try to push away violently the person that's trying to tackle them. And sometimes it works, right? Am I losing you? Okay. This is what the apostate does. The Holy Spirit moves in and seeks to convert them and tell them that they, they are in need of salvation. But they put up the stiff arm. They put up a stiff arm on the pre-conversion work of the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus talking about in the 12th chapter of Matthew, if I may read that to you. Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 and 32. It's called the unpardonable sin, by the way. He who is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But blasphemy against the, Holy, against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, it might be a raging, no, I'm not going to buckle to your conviction, Holy Spirit, or an uh, uh, often it's just a very like, no, thank you. Nah, I don't think so. Don't really want to do that now. And the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of the heart. Nah, no, thanks. I want to be on the throne of my own life. And that's what that means here. That's insulting the spirit of grace who's seeking to, it's a heart refusal. It's a, sti a, 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 heart, a stiff arm to the Holy Spirit. And I guess you can probably guess what the, the, the uh, results of that are, can't you? We've seen verses 29 and 30 and 31, the awful results of being an apostate. Or maybe just in general refusing the Holy Spirit's knock on our heart. Now, I mean, we're talking about apostates here, but we could be talking about any believe, unbeliever that is resisting uh, coming to faith, the Holy Spirit's convicting them to come to faith in Christ. But here's the results. Verse 29, 
severely do you think, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished? Severe, that word severe, it's a big deal. You remember Matthew 13, 47 through 50, when, and, and you know, you have it also in chapter 25, when the Lord separates the sheep from the goats. It's pretty profound, isn't it? It's Matthew 24, 25. Uh, the white throne judgment. Would you, would you uh, classify that in the category of severe? I, I would. I still get shivers when I read that. And there will come a separation. And some people will be separate. You won't even know that they're uh, not Christians until that time, that they're apostates. But Jesus knows, God the Father knows, and the fish will be separated, the wheat from the tares will be separated, and severe eternal judgment will happen. The certain, you know, look at verse 30, where it says, for we know him who said, it is mine, I will repay. God's talking here. And again, he says, the Lord will judge his people or those who claim to be. Okay, and then you have that word that sticks out in verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think this is uh, addressed to Christians. God doesn't address his children that way. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Dreadful. It's in, it's in, in the original language, it's, in, it's emphatic. It's dreadful, if I could just kind of dramatize it. Dreadful. I mean, you read um, the book of Re Revelation, and you go to the last chapter, or not, uh, the 20th chapter, rather, in verse 14. I'll start in verse uh, 11. For then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. I'm, I'm getting to the verse that's hopefully on the screen. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. And, th and then, is verse 14 up there? It's not there. There it is. I, should, I don't even have to ask anymore. They've got a beautiful big screen for me to look at. Thanks, guys. That's a big help if I'll just use it, right? Uh, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You've probably heard this before, but you know... Um, Jesus talked more about hell than he did in heaven. Did you know that? You think he did that because Jesus really loved poking a stick in the eye of his church? Yes or no? No, he did it because he loved us. Loves us, and he died to get, keep us out of that place. Right? But he called it a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. No annihilationism with Jesus. No, you just go there for a certain amount of time and then you just kind of disappear into nothing. There's none of that in Scripture, in my opinion. Jesus described in, Mark, uh, in uh, Matthew 8 and 24, hell is a place of outer darkness where there would be what? Weeping and what? Gnashing of teeth. Okay? He said it's better to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand and go in there maimed than it is to uh, go to heaven maimed than to go into hell. 
And by that, it was a hyperbole saying, do whatever you have to do to stay out. Jesus described the rich man in hell as being in agony in the flames, Luke 16. He further described those flames as eternal fire, which is the same word for eternal life in Matthew 25. And just to say this, it's a place of conscious eternal torment that Christ died to save us from out of his love for us. And I'll tell you what, as a 17-year-old kid in Lansing, Michigan, that fear of hell was enough for me to turn to Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you say, well, you should have come to him on better terms. Well, those are the only terms I knew at that time. And they were enough, amen? And Jesus talks a lot about that. Now, I did not want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven. I was very concerned about that. The Holy Spirit was convicting me. And so, because of that, I got on my knees as a junior in high school at my bedside, and I knew the consequences of it. It was going to be a nuclear holocaust in my home and neighborhood. I was going to lose all my friends, come into other disappointment and disapproval of my family. I was going to be alone. But I thought... If you know me, you know what a stubborn cuss I am. And I knew it was the right thing, and I received Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I was born again. Because of this awful reality of hell and the wonderful blessing of heaven, free of charge through Christ. You know, the apostate, the unbeliever needs to hear that, but the apostate needs to hear that as a warning to get back and totally, truly believe in Jesus. You guys with me on that? And because in the, as the days increase and the persecution and the temptation and the, 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 the utter uh, intensity and negativity of what it means to be a Christian grow, apostasy will increase. It's in biblical prophecy. And I, I just don't want to be one of those people. How about you? I just don't. And that means we just need to continue to, to fully give ourselves over to Jesus. We can't lose our salvation, but perseverance is a sign that we are saved. Does that make sense? You've only heard it 45 times through this series in Hebrews, okay? Let's go to the last one, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Um, the last uh, description of an apostate here is in verses 32 through 39. And it means, and it, and it happens when a once professing Christian was initially enthused about Christ, but over time didn't persevere in Christ. There was an initial uh, enthusiasm, just like Jesus' parable of the soils, you know, sprung up, hey, yeah, we're going to church 12 times a week. And somehow, does anybody not know a person that, like that who was so jazzed for Jesus? hot for Christ, and then you wonder, you haven't seen him darken the door of a church or a home group or crack open a Bible in years, if ever, any, anymore again. Not that we don't have dry times, not that we don't have mental health days, not that we don't struggle, not saying that, not that we don't get discouraged. That's not the issue here. The issue is apostasy, falling away in the heart, and we can hide it for a while, but God knows it's happening. 
But this apostate or apostasy happens when a once professing Christian was initially enthused about Christ, but over time did not persevere in Christ. So let's look at this, and then we'll, we'll close with this last one here. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great context, contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Sounds like a believer to me. But we need to go farther, don't we? Especially the last verse. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is, he who is coming will come and not delay but my righteous one will live by faith. If, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we, now this is the key verse here, right here, verse 31. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, not our being, but our well-being, but of those who believe and are saved. So he juxtaposes those who believe and are saved with those who shrink back. And I'll tell you, you know, if you're going to interpret the word of God with integrity, there's only one conclusion. These are apostates. They were initially enthused, but that enthusiasm drained away and showed their true spiritual uh, character. Well, let's go through this. It appeared that they had received the light, verse 32. Now that word there is that they knew the gospel with more than a passing acquaintance. That's what makes this so... What? Sobering. They had the info. They had the info. People raised in church had the info. People who have been in church, we got the info. They had it. They had good understanding. They knew it well, but they hadn't applied faith and repentance to it. They had all the information, but they didn't, and they didn't lack anything intellectually, but they had not truly believed. And I know this is this is, this, is, this, is, this is hard stuff. I know it. But they, they had all this, the info, but, but they didn't put their full trust in Jesus Christ. And the writer's saying to them, look, you're so close. You've been through much. You've learned so much. You've fellowshiped so much, and yet you're so far away. Believe. Don't settle for proximity. Move on to personal acceptance of Jesus. It's, it's, it's just... It's tough. I mean, G Jesus said, many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, did I not, you know, did I not do pro prophecy pro and preach sermons and didn't I cast out demons and do works of power? And Jesus said, I don't even have a relationship with you. Scary stuff. And it says another thing, they stood their ground in suffering. They had faithfully suffered with Christians their Christianity appeared steadfast in the, faith of a great, in the face of a great context. Although not believers for a time, they were not ashamed to suffer for being considered believers. I mean, they had a first love for Christ, for his teachings in the church, but they had not fully trusted Christ and possibly turning away. And that's why he's warning them, okay? Come on back. Make it real. Make sure it's full belief. He says they endured public insults. It's the Greek word for theater, or where we get our word, theater. They were in the theater of being insulted. 
by the world. They sympathized with those imprisoned for their faith. It even says they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. I mean, they had a hope for a while. But then they're warned in verses 35 through 39. It's the warning of the parable of the sowers all over again, of the seed, rather, sower and the seed all over again. And the writer is saying, don't be like the seed, the stony ground that Jesus talked about that endured to a degree, but as time and persecution and temptation and sin or false teaching or just neglecting of making a full commitment increase, you get offended and fall away. You've given up so much, gone through so much, learned so much, but you're in danger of petering out and falling away and going back into complete unbelief that's worse than what you had before. And so he gives them four warnings. Don't throw away your confidence. Did I read this, by the way? Did I read through this? I did. Okay, take your word for it. I read verses 32 through 30. Nine, okay, I did that. Okay, in verse 35, he says, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw it all away. We've heard that phrase. Persevere, he says in verse 36. Keep going to the end to prove your salvation. Remember, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Live by faith. Don't shrink back. Truly repent and keep believing. Why? For two reasons. Number one, if we don't, then it's proof that there was no salvation in the first place and will receive God's eternal displeasure and destruction. Not the loss of being as some of the cults and even Christian churches teach, but the loss of well-being forever. But then we come to the, the end is so positive. This is what I like. It ends on a real high note. If we do these things, and if we per, if heed these warnings and persevere to the end, great things are going to happen, and he finishes with that. So I, yes, I am finishing, okay? Number one in verse 35, it says, our confidence will be richly rewarded. What does that mean? It means we'll go to heaven and bask in the glory of God in new glorified bodies forever. Romans eight eighteen, Paul says, I'm convinced that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. I'd say that's worth persevering for. Number two, we will receive, verse 36, what God has promised, new bodies. You ever notice when you get to a certain age, that's all you talk about is your body? That's the that general theme of the conversation. You young people, you don't even have a clue. You're, you're, you're studly, strong. You, you leap tall buildings with a single bound, you know, faster than a speeding bullet. You know, reminds me of my kids are all just, yeah, yeah, can I help you up, Dad? You know, and, uh, need some help with that, Dad? I mean, pity, you know? It's, you know, it's tough when your kids start pitying you, you know, start parenting you, you know? Don't lift that. It's kind of nice. But we're going to get new, imperishable, immortal, powerful, supernatural, eternal bodies as persevering saints of God. It's worth it to make a full-blown heart commitment to Christ. 
Our confidence will be richly rewarded. We'll receive what God has promised. And verse 37, we'll be ready for the next presidential election. Oh, and that doesn't say that. We'll be ready for Christ's soon return. Verse 37. I mean, what could be better than being ready? If he came back today, are you ready? What a glorious thing to be saying, I'm ready, I'm safe, I'm secure, no matter what happens on this crummy earth. And then the last thing, it will prove that our faith and belief is genuine and thus our salvation is genuine. Verse 39. And I love the way he closes out in verse 39 because he, it's a really positive note. And he says, I just love this. And he includes himself in, in, in his own warning. He says, but, excuse me, we are not of those who shrink back, who prove ourselves to never been saved in the first place, but, and are destroyed, not our being, but our well-being, but those who believe and are saved. So it's a very positive note. He's trusting that the vast majority of those who he's writing to are saved and that the rest who are in danger of slipping back will truly believe and not turn back because of persecution, temptation, sin, whatever, unpopularity. And as Christ returns, the return, Christ's return draws near, he's saying we're all gonna persevere and do all that we can to avoid the awful sin of apostasy. I hope that describes you, and I think it does. May, would, would there be one or two or ten? I, you know, that's, that's God's business, not mine. But if God has touched you like he did me back in 1975, and you've been growing a little stale, right? And church, whatever. Yeah. Let this be a warning to you. Think, think about me at 17 years old. And do the same thing. If, if the Holy Spirit has said, you've, you've, been, you've, been, you've, been, you've been cool enough, turn back with a vengeance and tell Christ, you're Lord of my life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear God, in some ways, I really didn't want to preach this sermon. I don't love talking about hell and eternal judgment, but there it is. And you can't avoid the word of God, and it would be a cruel and awful thing to avoid the hard passages because you gave them to us out of love. You gave them to us because you care about us. You gave them to us to warn us, to keep our instincts and our intuition and our thoughts in line with yours. And I just pray, Lord, if there's someone that's just here this morning, just, they, they've, been, they've been getting stale, they've been cooling off, kind of, eh, whatever, just kind of, I'm bored with stuff, church, my devotions. I'm, Lord, flash your love and light and truth in their hearts, and may they renew their commitment to Christ, as we all need to do from time to time. Protect us from the awful, terrible sin of unbelief and apostasy, which there is no forgiveness for ultimately because it's a sin of unbelief. And keep us strong, 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 and hot for Jesus till the very end. And all God's people said, amen. amen.